folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm your co-host today. We're thrilled to have you here with us. We've got a great guest. I'm talking about David Thomas. He is a neighbor of ours, a local Nashvilleian, and he is the director of family counseling at Daystar Counseling, which is an amazing counseling center for children here in Nashville, Tennessee. He is co-author of 10 books, including the best-selling Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys, and Are My Kids on Track? And he is the author of the brand new book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, Tools Your Son Can Build On for Life. And we're talking about that book today, uh, as well as, of course, the Enneagram. He's got a great workbook called Strong and Smart, A Boy's Guide to Building Healthy Emotions. You're going to want to check all of those materials out. This is a great conversation, a really strong one. David is an Enneagram One, and we go in depth on that. So I know you're going to enjoy this. We've got an Enneagram One for you and an Enneagram One who is a therapist. So happy that you're here. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now here is the host of our show, Ian Crum. Hey, Typology Tribe, we have an amazing guest in the studio today. Welcome, Enneagram One, David Thomas, author of the new book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, Tools Your Son Can Build On for Life. David, welcome to Typology. Ian, thank you for having me. I'm so grateful for the work you do and honored to be a part of this conversation. Thank you. Well, this is going to be an amazing conversation, not only for Enneagram Ones. It's going to be an amazing conversation for parents, perhaps parents who are Enneagram Ones, or parents who are parenting Enneagram One children. And man, I get so many questions from parents of Enneagram One children who are pulling their hair out, trying to help their child live within you know the parameters of their temperament, disposition, and personality. So let's hat out it. David, tell me about your journey as an Enneagram One. I'd love to. I came into understanding the Enneagram through some great friends. I don't even know exactly how many years ago now, probably 15, 16 years ago. I'd had several friends around me who were well-versed and just became more and more curious. As a psychology major, I was actually trained in the Myers-Briggs. So at first, I think I was a little cautious, like, I know this so well. I don't know this at all, but I'm curious and I want to understand more. And you know, the longer I've had an opportunity to just explore that personally and professionally, where I have seen the Enneagram change the game for parents I'm working with, just change the game. I believe in it. I don't think I can learn enough about it. And I was laughing with you before we jumped on. I can't encourage enough parents to read the road back to you who don't know their number and just find this out because I really have seen all the different layers of benefit that exist in my own life and certainly exist in my work as a therapist. Mm -hmm. So I love the tool. Absolutely love it. Mm. So when you discovered you were an Enneagram one and you reflected on your life, what came up for you? Do you resonate with the maturity of the description of an Enneagram one? How have you navigated that personality style? Well, I would say probably like most people when they come to understand their number, it's the stuff you don't like that settles you into an understanding of, okay, this is indeed mine before mm. any of the good stuff comes along. And I would even go a step further to say, 
you know, I've, I've just never met an Enneagram one who was excited to discover <laughs> those things are incredibly true about me. Never. I don't think that person exists. I'd be curious to meet you if it does. So, you know, on the front side, it was just some of the worst news I had come into and, and the truest news. And so I could find myself and, and even track back through my own story to find so much evidence of where that fit. And Ian, I have a unique story. Maybe you can tell me if this is unique or not, but my parents didn't know that tool. I lost my mom several years ago to cancer, but Mm -hmm. I'm firmly convinced she was an Enneagram one and her father was as well, my grandfather. So I think I often say I'm a third generation one. And so I think there is a knowing in that space as well as I could kind of connect dots and trace lines from two generations of where I see so much of that spilling out. Now, I will say, though my mom didn't know it, didn't know the Enneagram, she just did a lot of amazing work. So I think particularly the last half of her life, she was operating more from a place of health Mm -hmm. because she just had done a lot of personal work. And so I got to experience some of the best of that, I think, in some ways that I've wanted to live into as I think about my journey. Whereas my grandfather, on the other hand, thankful for his life, but to the end, to all the way. He lived to be 97, to the end, had so much judgment and criticism, was operating with a megaphone with the inner critic so much of the time. So I think I've gotten a glimpse of what it looks like in a lot of different ways on a person later in life. Mm. So we're going to be talking about boys, boyhood, how to help boys find some tools to navigate their emotional life. Before we do that, though, tell us about your boyhood. I was, I could have been the picture beside the one as a boy, you know, awarded the Good Citizen Award as an elementary school student. No one had to remind me to make my bed, you know, just so many of the things that cue me to lean into the possibility of that with kids I see who live in that space, just Mm -hmm. unbelievably hard on myself, no matter how much the people around me could dial the pressure down, I could dial it up on my own, the expectations I would have for myself. So Obviously, to your first question, that looking back over that part of my story is when I think so much of that number made so much sense to me. And I could trace backwards and see evidence of where I had been doing that and and how often I was speaking so harshly to myself in ways that had become deeply familiar and ingrained in me. Mm. I had a therapist friend who said to me one time, what questions do you wake up with? And I remember reflecting on that as an adult and thinking, when I wake up tired, because I'm just had a crazy busy week or a lot of travel, and I have trouble just getting myself out of bed, I can start with a question of what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You know, and I think I think about that now, knowing what I know, and I wondered how many years for how long were you asking some version of that question to yourself when you weren't even aware? Like it just became a default setting for you that you would even open your eyes and not be able to extend any grace to yourself for having worked hard, had a really intense week and being the normal tired that any human being is going to be. So it's maybe a long answer to your question. No, it's, it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Cause I want it to be, as we know. (laughs) That's right. You know, I, uh, we had Andy Stanley on the show. No, I was on Andy Stanley's podcast and his daughter had picked him as a five. And then he had taken our IEQ nine and come out as a one. So I was like, oh, no, I hope the margin of error on that test did not, you know, screw up the nailing his type. 
Well, when I got into the interview with him and he told me that, I asked him a few questions and he, he said to me, well, you know, every Monday morning at 2 a.m., so following church the day after, he said, I wake up at around 2 a.m. and I start to criticize everything I had done wrong in the sermon the day before. He says, I get this voice in my head and I went, you are not a five. Your daughter has not told you the truth. I said, I mean, obviously and, and unintentionally, but it sure sounds like you're a one. And of course, we continued to unpack it during the interview. And I described a one and he said, I am definitely a one. So I, I understand that. And I've had many, many ones tell me that they wake up in the morning and or they wake up in the night. The voices actually awaken them in the night. And uh, they've had to learn how to figure out how to be in healthy conversation with those voices. Wow, David, you're shaking your head. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think the voice never sleeps. And, mm. you know, even to hear you tell that story, I was out of town speaking yesterday. And if I were to look back, I actually drove to this event, not, not flew. But if I were to think about how much of that drive I might have spent critiquing and dissecting how I did like, and, and again, not even being aware and certainly operating with more awareness now to develop some practices around knowing like, you know what, you should put a podcast on, you should listen to some music. You need to interrupt that dialogue. It's not helpful. The talk is done. You can't change anything that was just said or your experience. And then going a step further to think requiring myself, this isn't an instinctive question for me, but requiring myself to think, what could I have given to that time that was useful? What could I have offered to those parents that was of value? Because that's not a question I'd ever go to on my own, but a question I can require myself you know, to ask, which feels in keeping with so much of what I've learned about the Enneagram over the years. It just I, I cannot change the way I see the world, but I can change what I do with how I see. I can't make those questions stop, that criticism, but I can develop some habits and practices to interrupt that in some ways that serve me better. You know, one of the things I've heard a lot of Enneagram teachers recommend to ones is fight the voices. You know what I mean? Push back on the voices. And I'm always telling them that's a bad idea because, you know, as the old hackneyed aphorism goes, what you resist persists. So what I oftentimes encourage ones to do is to make friends with those parts right? Make friends with the voices, reparent the voices, assure them that you as an adult no longer need their help. Because I think we pick them up as little kids. They're well-intentioned. Like the voices for some reason arise because they think they're going to help you somehow, mm -hmm. right? Avoid mistakes and punishment, avoid not being good and appropriate. You know, it's like they think they're helping you, but when we unconsciously drag the voices into adulthood, then they start to work against us and really cause a, potentially a lot of misery. I so appreciate that wisdom. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. Like, I don't, I don't think it's possible. Well, I guess it is possible to try and fight the voices, but I don't think you'll ever win. But what would it look like to take a different path in those moments? I love that wisdom. Yeah, I love that you make that point, Ian, because obviously those voices come out of a need. It's like a need of the heart. It's like they are trying to help. And if you think of it as the enemy and try to resist it, then basically you're resisting some sort of a need down in there. 
and to make space to listen to it is that's a wow it's a powerful concept yeah you know in in my last book i tell the story it's from a woman named tara brack whose work i teaching i really enjoy and she tells the story of a friend of hers who was at her mother's bedside when she was in the last hours of her life she'd been in a coma for a couple of weeks and as sometimes happens um she woke up from this coma and she literally bolted up in bed and looked at her daughter and said all my life i thought there was something wrong with me and then she lay down and died i mean what an wow. i mean wow right all my wow. life i thought there was something wrong with me and i think for every type and but maybe particularly for once we want to avoid that ending right we want to Absolutely. avoid that carrying that belief through our lives and i think for for ones that that's a particular vulnerability you know yeah yeah so how do ones parent hmm. it's interesting when you were talking a little bit earlier about parents and kids hearing from parents of kids who might be ones I was so curious about how often I would imagine you hear from adult children of ones. And I think a lot about my own kids. I have three kids and what their journey has been like. And um, particularly on the front side, when I didn't have as much knowledge of this great tool as I do and wasn't being as intentional and thinking back to all the stories I remember in my mind of where my oneness led in my journey of parenting. And so my hope is, as I translate that to my work, that I have a lot of compassion for parents who are ones and a lot of compassion for kids who are. Because I think even to the last question we were talking around, there was something important for me. I don't know if this is true for everyone listening, but getting to a place of understanding that desire for perfection like Anthony, even what you said, thinking back about what's underneath that, like there is a genuine desire for me as a one for everyone. I believe like I want to do good in the world. Unfortunately, I want to perfect all the people in the world <laughs> as I do that good. I want to reform them all. And, you know, the way I execute that could be bad. But that desire of I want to do good things in the world, I want to reform things. And so getting to a place where I could see the goodness of that and extend some grace to myself that and then I hope allows me to do more of that with parents who are ones and kids who are working so hard to write things because they're living in this number. You're right. I do get a lot of questions from the children of ones because if they've lived with an unhealthy one or a one that has not done their work, what ends up happening is the child of the one ends up picking up what I call intergenerational voices. So the, the child could be a seven or a five or a two, mm -hmm. but they sometimes think they're a one because when I talk about the voices, they're like, I have those voices. And then you start to tease it out. What you realize is they've actually inherited sort of a, a gauzy, ghosty kind of voice in the back of their head that actually belongs to their mother or father that was passed on to them. So, you know, there's a, a lot at stake for every type. You know, every type can pass on and will pass on shadow dimensions of their type to their children if they're not careful. But that's the one I see and hear about most. Mm -hmm. The other one I hear about a lot is the way that ones tend to express love. And I mentioned this in the road back to you is by being a responsible parent who creates a world in which their child can grow up to be 
the healthiest expression of themselves. So they're not necessarily tactile or huggy types who are always saying, I love you and all that stuff. But they will make sure that that kid has the right amount of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins in every meal. They will make sure that that child is properly dressed for winter, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes the child of one will say, my parent was, you know, kind of perhaps cool. They didn't express love the way that other parents did. But I'll say to them, however, maybe that's not your parent's love language. Like, like, can you step back and appreciate how your parent was a little bit like the Atticus Finch type who was there for you at every turn and expressed love by providing, again, this, this natural hmm. climate in which you could develop into a beautiful human being, a responsible, good citizen human being in the world. So, man, this parenting thing for every type is really important to kind of figure out. That's moving, Ian. It Go is. Ahead, Ian. And, you know, it made me think of, Ian, I think I learned this from you. You tell me if this sounds familiar to you, but I think I learned this from listening to you years ago. I heard it said, and I've hung on to this, that ones make it so that others feel safe in the world so they can thrive. And I think that was so incredibly helpful for me to think about that. You know, when I think about all the work I have done in my own parenting to try to do all the things you just described, make sure everybody got to their pediatric well visits and teeth clean and school supplies. And when those things are in order or when those things are taken care of, like kids are safer, kids are healthier, kids have the things they need. When I could again, get so critical, just beat myself up for all the stuff I can't let go of or couldn't let go of on the front side. Well, everybody, I want to remind you, we're talking with David Thomas, author of the new book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, Tools Your Son Can Build On for Life. David, before we get to the book, which I'm going to do in a moment, we don't get many ones on. And I was so fascinated to have an Enneagram One therapist on, because mm -hmm. you may be the first Enneagram One therapist I've ever met. I don't think it's common. I don't at yeah, all. It isn't. I mean, I, I've met a ton of twos and fours and uh, sixes and nines. I would say those are the normal ones I see, two, four, six, yes. and nine. Mm. But no ones. What drew you to being a therapist as a one? I think I've always been fascinated by the, the study of human behavior. And if I think about where my oneness intersects with that, you know, I feel certain it was this sense of I can – help people bring about good change. I can help people be agents of good change in the world. So mm. again, I think good intention in it mixed with all the negative stuff too, like believing I could reform and change people, which is not my job, but to help them bring about ch the change they want and need in their own lives. But I absolutely agree with you. And what's fascinating, even to the numbers you just stated, if I think about my colleagues, I'm in a practice with 14 different therapists and with the exception of one other one, I have one other dear friend and colleague who's a one, which again feels so rare. The majority of them are twos, fours, and nines, and a couple of sixes. So it's every number you just named. And hmm. I would say where I have benefited from all those numbers just named is I, I, people have even asked me that, like, how do you do that as a one? That doesn't seem to fit. And I think I have, for most of my life, I think had a big two wing which has helped me as a therapist. I think figuring out how to move to the high side of four, your number, and be able to sit with people in pain, 
the fact that my other next door neighbor, which I'm working really hard to develop a bigger nine wing, I think allows me to see all sides and that, you know, when I'm at my best, I can grab hold of some of that fun seven energy and drop some of my rigidity. And and so I have access to all these great numbers that I think mm. are the numbers we named and well suited for my profession when my own number isn't as much, maybe is the way I would say that. And so learning how to borrow from those places or move on that line in those directions, I, I think has been transformative for me because I, again, I do, I have access to some of my favorite numbers. I have access to all these good mm. things that I think help me in the harder moments of my number and my work. Can I say something there, Ian? I, and we say this a lot on the show, David. I love that you made mention of that moving to the high side of four because typically the one goes to four in stress. But Ian makes it a point of saying you have access to all those numbers, even the number that you go to in stress, you have access to going to the high side of that number. So I love that you you made a point of saying that. Yeah. You know, David, I've been a friend of Richard Rohr's. I haven't seen him in a, in a, well, we did an interview with him a, a bunch of years ago, which if you have never heard, you should, because Richard is a hard one. He's yeah. a hard one. And I remember when I first met him, I expected him to be a two, kind of like a huggy, you know, Franciscan yeah. priest. And I, when I met him, I was like, no, this guy is no two. This guy is a serious one. And on our interview with him, he spoke about his journey of elevating his nine wings. And that in later life, that has been a huge goal for him. And so I also want to encourage people to go back and listen to our interview with Richard Rohr, because if, again, it's a great Enneagram One conversation. And to your point, a one that is like, I've got to build up my nine side Mm -hmm. in a way that helps me to relax, to see the world as all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, just to Mm. kind of load into that side of their life. Okay, let's talk about the book. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about this most wonderful, wonderful book. Tell everybody about it. I don't want to describe it. You're kind. So I have been practicing at this amazing place here in Nashville called Daystar Counseling for the past 25 years. And we serve just the pediatric population. Our whole focus is kids, adolescents, and families. So I've had a chance just to sit front row to a lot of amazing families over the course of my work. And one of my favorite things from that is that I've had some opportunities to write some books. And as we were talking about a few minutes ago, just teach to parents too. Here's what I'm learning from sitting with kids. And this book, I would say, is the most of what I know to be true after 25 years of doing a lot of work with boys and adolescent males and their Mm -hmm. families. And so this book felt as important as ever because we as adult males lead some of the scariest statistics out there. You know, we lead the stats around infidelity, internet pornography, substance abuse, suicide. And I think the common denominator in all those places being that it's a male's attempt to try to numb out whatever it is that I'm feeling. I don't want to deal with pain. And so my great hope was this book could be a tool to help us figure out. I love the Desmond Tutu quote of, there comes a point where we got to stop just dragging people out of the river and let's go downstream and figure out why they're falling in. And anything I could be a part of doing on the front side of development to help equip boys to take this emotional journey that's part of every one of our stories. And so that was my great hope to not just have that conversation, but really talk around some practical tools. So every chapter ends with five intentional practices of just, I kind of introduce some ideas and then what does it look like for us to test drive these things 
going forward. And I talk a lot too about the the Frederick Douglass quote of it's easier to build strong kids and to repair broken men. And so I, I want to be about that work of just building strong kids. It's what I love. It's what I've been doing for 25 years and what I hope to just write more about in this new book. So I wrote that book for parents. And then I actually wrote a workbook for elementary age boys that it's a companion guide with it. So I had, had six to 12 year old boys in mind, but I think it's easy to modify with four or five year old boys. And it's just putting some of these practices into language that I hope is accessible for them. And, you know, I know boys well enough to know they don't want to read long chapters of a workbook. They don't want to do a lot of work. So it's a lot of experiments and experiential things that they can do. So thanks for letting me talk about it. I'm so glad to be having the conversation too, because we've had a lot of conversation over the years and recent decades about the difficulty of the woman's journey. And I'm totally in favor of it. I, I think it was ignored for far too long. But I think in the process, what's happened is What is it that men or boys, what is it that makes their lives so hard? Mm. You know, like what is, what are they carrying inside? And so I think I'd love the idea that you're, you're reintroducing this, uh, this topic to people. So you talk about emotional health. What does that look like for boys? One of the things I talk about early in the book is what I just call the, the three R's, which are recognize, regulate, and repair. Like, what does it look like just to recognize when my body is just sending an emotional signal to me? I, I in the workbook with boys, I talk about it kind of like the dashboard of a car. And, you know, our car's going to cue us like the tire needs some air, the gas tank's getting low, the oil needs changing. And if we attend to those things, then the car keeps running efficiently, effectively. And if we don't, we could do some real damage to the vehicle. We could do some real damage to us. We all know the body keeps the score. And so this sense of what does it look like to recognize and pay attention to those things and then regulate just employing some coping strategies when my nervous system goes into these heightened states of arousal, which it will at different points. And then repair. I talk a lot about how in my experience and all these years of this work, I think boys swing between blame and shame a lot. I laughingly tell the story about one of my own sons at five years old on a Saturday morning, we were running around trying to get out the house for a soccer game. And he walked up to my wife and was like, what did you do with my soccer cleats? Not, do you know where they are? Did you see where I left them? (laughs) Did you see where I put them? Like, what did you do with them? And I think that's a bit of an instinctive Mm -hmm. response for us as males. And then if we're not pointing the finger out and blaming, sometimes we get stuck in self-contempt. I see a lot of boys there. I'm such an idiot. I'm the worst member of this family. No one loves me. And I think males can stay stuck in that swing unless Mm. we teach what it looks like to move towards some healthy ownership. And so I define those three R's on the front side. And then I would say to into your question, you know, I talk a lot in the introduction of this book about how if, if parents were to think back to those early pediatric well visits, you know, when you go in, the pediatrician asks parents of new boys and girls, how many words is he or she saying? What we know, what the data tells us is that girls are going to be saying two to three times the number of words on the front side. And so if her general vocabulary is larger, it makes sense that her emotional vocabulary would be larger. And so part of what I want to do in terms of emotional health is just help boys and adolescent young men expand their emotional vocabulary so they can name and then navigate their experience differently. But that's happening on the front side. And then around nine to 10, boys begin to channel all primary emotions, fear, sadness, confusion, disappointment into about one emotion, and that's anger. And culturally, I think we support that. 
we, we send a lot of messages to boys. Like it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to be afraid. It's okay to be angry. It's not okay to be sad. And so Mm -hmm. I think we are both pushing against this biological process happening on the front side, this cultural message on the backside. And if we don't do anything to interrupt that or get in the middle of it, it just makes sense to me why those scary stats are what they are. And I sat with a dad a few weeks ago and he's both a husband, a father, and he's actually a professional athlete. And he said, David, you know, I look back now and I realize my entire life I was being messaged by the men around me, you know, towards suppression and self-reliance. Don't feel, don't ask for help. And then he said, I went into this vocation where they actually trained me as an athlete on the baseball field. Don't show any emotion, you know? And so he's like, everything I've learned personally and professionally has worked against me as a husband and a father. I've had to relearn everything to be able to be who I want to be as a husband and a father in this world. And I think that man's story is to some degree, probably the majority of our stories. And we weren't even aware where we, be, we were being messaged or moved in the directions of suppression and self-reliance. So I think we're just going to have to do some work in that space. And I just wanted this workbook to feel like doable work on the front side of development. Hmm. Boy, I have a son and I wish I wish I'd had this book when I when I was a, a younger dad, you know, and you mentioned something earlier that I think is really important because it, it sort of points to what's at stake in this conversation. I've been in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction and part of a recovery community four or five times a week for some time. We know that for boys, it's a huge percentage are more likely to use illicit drugs than girls. I think it's like 11% more. It actually may be higher. For some reason, I, in my mind, it was 11%. When you go to meetings, here's what you hear. We talk about emotional sobriety. Most of the time in a meeting, people think that alcoholics and drug addicts sit around and sort of try, how do I not drink? It's not true. That may happen in the very early stages, but it's like, how do I get whole? And that's the conversation that takes place in meetings. And guess what recovery is? And so emotional sobriety, when we talk about that topic in meetings, it's all about, you hear this over and over again from men. I had no idea how to deal with my feelings. And so I did anything I could to change them, mm-hmm. right? Yes. To alter my feelings in order to cope with them. So this, you know, if nothing else, one of the things that makes this book so important is it can mitigate possible bad choices that boys might make to deal mm. with their feelings. Yes, absolutely. So, I was just going to say, I love what you said. And actually, midway through the book, I talk about how some of the healthiest parents I've worked with over the years are parents in recovery. Mm. Because you've done your work, those basic tenets of, I understand, I have a struggle, I need God, I need community, those basic principles that I wish every one of us in the world was operating from, not just parents. But that, I wanted to say to that, and then secondly, the thing that I was also thinking as, as you were talking along the way is that the other set of parents that I see are the healthiest are those who are using the Enneagram, again, because you're getting connected with some of those same things, you know, understanding. Here's what the shadow side looks like. Here are my traps. Here are my vulnerabilities. And so it's where I, I just bring it right back to I cannot endorse this tool enough with parents. I honestly don't know that there is a talk I do on any topic related to parenting where I don't figure out a way to weave in the importance of this tool and how much awareness I think parents can build within this tool. And so 
again, I'm just going to keep telling you, you know, I'm grateful for the work you're doing in this world. It feels so important. And quite honestly, it makes my job 10 times easier when parents are building that awareness. <laughs> can, can I even just lastly say this as we're talking on that point? I sat with some parents last week. Here's a perfect example. The mom is an eight. The dad is a three. And the mom said to me in a really sobering moment of our conversation, she said, I worry with what I know to be true about myself and about my husband that neither one of us are a safe place to land for our kids. Wow. (laughs) I just said, what incredible awareness that I don't think she could have brought to the conversation if she didn't know the things that are true, all the amazing strengths that exist for her as an eight mom, how safe she makes her kids feel in the world, but also she and her husband are doing dominant, you know, just this sense of like, we just go straight toward this and nobody thinks to just sit and listen to this kid, you know, just sit on the edge of the bed and be still. And just the second he starts crying, I'm automatically thinking, how do I make this stop? How do I help him move forward? Mm. And so I just, I, I think that's such a clear example of how this tool can transform the journey of parenting. We just had Mary Gauthier on, she's an eight and she said the same thing about herself when she realized that she was an eight and that she was basically living on fire and lighting up everything around her. She's like, this isn't going to work for me. I'm a scary person to be with and I need to take a look inside, right? So just a great example of, a, of an eight who's done a lot of work. If you want to go check that show out. I just wanted to ask you, as men, I think we have really lived in suppression and you talk about you know, working with your boys and how you have to move to the emotion before you move through the emotion. Could you talk about that a little bit? So struggling with suppressing our own feelings, how do we move to the emotion with our children when we're trying to help them and their struggle? Yeah. I think if we were to start with the Enneagram, figure out where you are dominant and repressed. I think Mm -hmm. that can be a game changer right there to Mm -hmm. how you would not just struggle with moving to the emotion, but sometimes be moving in the opposite direction Mm, of the emotion. If you were to learn about yourself, okay, I'm feeling repressed. Here's what that would sound off inside of me in those moments. But I think secondly, I talk a lot in the book about how strategic I think we want to be with boys in general when we're engaging them emotionally. I talk a lot about talking side to side with boys instead of eye to eye. I think eye to eye can feel threatening for a lot of boys. And so, you know, if we're like, we, you need to sit down and we need to talk about what's happened. I just think can move a lot of boys into fear and shame instinctively. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we were to say like, Hey, I'm going to take the dog on a walk. Will you go with me? And as we're in motion doing something along the way, sometimes those conversations feel a little safer. I talk with parents like, don't bombard him when you pick him up from school. It's like, how was your day? Who's a good friend to you today? You know, right. <laughs> boys can feel so overwhelmed at 3.30 when they've expended a lot of mental and relational energy throughout the day. Go outside while he's shooting hoops after he had a snack, got some fuel in the system and retrieve the ball and throw it back to him. Get on the trampoline and jump with him. Like I think we can have some of our best conversations move to the emotion when we're in motion with boys. Ooh, I think that great. is a great strategy to employ for any parent thinking about a son who maybe gets stuck and, and has trouble talking about how he feels. Love that. I have an Enneagram seven son, hardcore seven with a seven wing son who I just adore. I, I love this kid, but here's what I learned about Aiden. After I learned the Enneagram, Aiden has a lot of trouble with D 
dealing with afflictive emotions, right? Painful emotions. So I've, I've learned with him, one of the things is I can only help him stay with a hard emotion for about 15 minutes. And then I have to say, well, let's revisit this conversation, you know, either later today or tomorrow. I just know she just can't stay there for very long. Yeah. And then the, the other thing I, I've learned about Aiden is that I have to wait on him because I'm a four. I can go to hard emotions in a heartbeat. If he came home and burst into tears and said, I'm really dealing with shame, I'd be like, here's my moment. <laughs> I'd be like, <laughs> you're an Olympic gold medalist in that space. <laughs> oh, man, I am. And so I have just learned not to, in, to look at him through the lens of my own type, but to realize he eventually does come to you when, when anxiety becomes too great for him as a seven and he's just carrying so much negative material inside and he pops. Sometimes we, we have to wait for that. I think other times using the resources you have in this amazing book, maybe I can help him get there a little quicker and to work through those feelings because his, his mm -hmm. tendency is run, run as fast as he can. You have a, another acronym in the book I want to touch on because I, I think it's fantastic. And by the way, you know, a lot of times readers or people in, in your presenting material, they hear an acronym and they roll their eyes, you know, because they're like, you know, here's an acronym, you know, and I'm always like, well, number one, you will not remember what I'm going to say unless I say this. And number two, being in recovery, we have all these acronyms in the recovery community, yes. which is like, it, they save your ass. Okay. <laughs> yes, they do. They save your ass. So let's talk yes. about rare. Let's talk about rare. Yeah. For I talk about how boys are resourceful, aware, resilient, and empathetic. Those are some of the ingredients I think of emotionally strong boys. And then have some nuts and bolts of what it looks like to move boys more in those directions. And, you know, as we were talking around the amazing awareness I experienced with parents who've been in recovery and, and parents who've studied this tool. Could I even share a quick story of me and my number as a parent where I've had to build some awareness and it bridges Anthony to the question you ask about talking with my own boys, you know, mm. because I've been working toward awareness, what I know to be true about me as a one is that I walk into any room and I see everything that's wrong before I could see anything that's right. Mm. And I have a unique story and then I have twin sons. So I have, my oldest is a girl and then I have twin boys and they're all in college now. But when they were in high school, any parent listening who has parented an adolescent boy knows that an adolescent boy after a sports practice has a very special smell about him. And two athletic <laughs> teenage boys who share a room together have a very, very special smell. So on any given day, my son's bedroom could look and smell like a locker room, the foulest locker room you've ever walked into. And if I wanted to have a conversation with them, walked into their room, I could get so distracted by everything that's wrong. Beds that aren't made, dirty clothes on the floor, sports equipment everywhere, the smell that's horrible, all the things that I, one of the practices I put into place as an Enneagram One dad is that when I wanted to have rich, deep conversations with my sons and listen, we'd go on a walk together because I was a much better version of myself than trying to sit in their room and stay focused on what they were saying. Keep, you know, that thing we're talking about, thinking I can have a better conversation eye to eye when I know it might happen side to side and that I'm not, my eyes aren't darting around the room to everything that needs changing or doing. And so 
that's one of the places where I'm, as I talk about helping boys build awareness, I'm working to build awareness in myself. And so mm. I, I, when I adopted that practice, I spent very little time in their room over the last three years they were in high school because it just, <laughs> it didn't benefit me or them to be in that space. Know and at the end of the, yes. And at the end of the day, it's like, who cares? Like, yeah, who I do care, but I want to care less. And I can't when I'm in that room and I see it. And what I care the most about is who they are as people. And I'm mm. crazy about these guys. They're, you know, I care about their character. I care about their hearts. And if I'm in their room too much, I end up caring more about that space because I'm so darn distracted by it. So that just is one practice I put into place as, as I thought about the end journey that I could keep my focus on the things I care the most about and mm. try and avoid those I care less about or want to care less about. Mm. You know, these two acronyms, I think, are tremendously helpful. And I would add one more to the puzzle. This also comes from Tara Brack. It's called RAIN. Do you know this one, David? I do. Yeah, this is so good for, for parents, even dealing with their own emotions with their children. So the first step would be to recognize, the, you know, what's going on. And this is all about the sacred pause, you know, like taking a pause and not being on autopilot. And the ability to recognize, okay, what am I feeling right now? And I always encourage people who have trouble, particularly threes, go get a ding-dang emotion wheel where, you know, they have the little goofy faces and the feelings underneath it. Because a lot of times, you know, threes, and there are other types like this, you know, they only have an emotional vocabulary of about five different feelings, right? But they don't know feelings like wistful. <laughs> you know, they don't know feelings like melancholy or, you know what I mean? They got you know, mad, sad, glad. You know, it's like they don't have the nuanced versions of it. So RAIN, R, recognize what's what's going on. The A is to recognize, oh gosh, I've forgotten the acronym. I'll come back to it. I is inquire to ask questions. For example, of yourself, could be your inner child or just of the voices. What needs attention? What do you need right now? Just speaking to your own feelings, what do you need right now? And then the N is nurture. And I love that. So I think these are, and anyway, people could go online, look up Tara Brack, B-R-A-C-H, and, and check out Rain. I think it's a- Allow sort of is a, the A. Oh, it's allow. Recognize right, and then allow the feeling. Just allow it to be there, mm. right? So there's that don't resist the feeling. Actually, if you can, move into its center. Oftentimes, and you probably have done this with clients. I don't, I don't have clients anymore, but when I talk to people, I, I'll say- Go into the feeling and then tell me what color it is. What is its texture? Is it rough? Is it smooth? Is it now tell me about its temperature? Is it hot? Is it cold? Try to have them find it in the body. So in other words, just to move into the feeling and recognize that the feeling is not monolithic, it's vaporous. Right? It's not <laughs> it ain't sticking around. It's not all that tough to, you know, it's just there. So allow it, make good questions of it, inquire, and then nurture. Anyway, I, I, mm. I just, this is all too loving uh, acronyms that I, I think are, are for helpful people. We got to wrap up. By the way, everyone, I'm talking to David Thomas, author of this amazing new book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, Tools Your Son Can Build On for Life. I also suspect that you're going to find some information there, parents, for how to raise emotionally healthy girls. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that this is just going to be about boys. I'm sure, yes, of course, the focus is there, but there are practices in here that would be great for 
young girls. So I want to broaden your audience, David. I don't want just parents of boys to buy this. And you Thank may you. also be the grandparent of a boy. You might be the uncle or aunt of, of a boy and you want to bring some of this in. So it's not just for parents. This really is for everybody that's in relationship, teachers and others. How do we train adults to raise up these boys regardless of whether they're parents or not? So this is a, a, a book for everybody and it's also got this amazing workbook that I want everybody to go out and as well. That's called Strong and Smart, A Boy's Guide to Building Healthy Emotions. We want to make sure people get that companion guide because they are so important with, uh, with the books, particularly of this genre. David, what an amazing conversation. Thank you for inviting me into this conversation. I've loved connecting with you. Well, it's been rich, rich, rich. Is there anything else that you want to leave parents uh, and the, well, those of us in relationship uh, familiarly or professionally with boys? Do you want to tell us? Hmm. You know, I was thinking, Ian, as we were talking about acronyms we love, I got to throw one more in that is favorite. I love when um, Anne Lamott talks about weight. Why am I talking? Which is one I encourage parents to employ <laughs> a lot. And you know, for me, as an Enneagram one who's thinking repressed, I can't say that one enough to myself. Like, why am I talking? Because there's a great chance what's coming out of my mouth right now is criticism and judgment. It's not needed. It's unproductive thinking. You know, it's all these possibilities that I've been saying that one back to myself over and over and over. Because, you know, I've long said as an Enneagram one, if I'm not careful, on any given day, I could operate in the world like I believe I'm the fourth member of the Trinity or at least God's Southeast representative, you know, and my input is just not needed in every conversation. Like it's just sometimes why am I talking is the best thing I could be saying back to myself so that I'm not reforming a situation or a person who's not interested in my reforming. Mm. Oh, man, that's a wonderful way to close out this uh, this conversation. Again, folks, David Thomas, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, Tools Your Son Can Build On for Life. David, thank you so much. I, I've loved this, and I do hope our paths cross on a walk one day. We just discovered, everybody, that we live in the same neighborhood, probably a, maybe less than half a mile from each other. So, <laughs> I, uh, you know, come on by my house, sit on the porch, we'll drink a lemonade, and we'll, we'll carry this conversation forward. Anthony, thank you for being here, as always, my brother. Great to be with you all. To all of our tribe, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Until next time.